Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. This will conclude our study in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. One in particular, as we left out from last Wednesday, it's the book of Deuteronomy, which is more often than not referred to in the New Testament simply as the book of the law. Before we get into that, though, just a couple of quick review things to keep fresh in your mind. The first is uh, we had a couple of questions about the Ark of the Covenant, and I wanted to let you have as much information on that as you will need going forward because the Ark of the Covenant makes several appearances. It's, in fact, one of the most precious artifacts in Jewish history. It is something that I very much wish we still had around. The Ark of the Testimony, as it's, often, as it's also called, is basically it's a reliquary. It's a box of evidence that was collected over the Exodus event to validate the fact that the event happened. In Near Eastern terms, whenever a covenant was made, there were two copies, two written copies of that covenant made. The first copy was given to the higher Lord and the other one, the people who were now subject to that Lord. So it is not only the case in which the tablets that God gave to Moses now rest, it also held certain evidences of the book. It's also covered by a unique item which functions as the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, but it's more often than not treated as a separate relic within its own right, called the Ark of the, or excuse me, called the Mercy Seat or in some of your translations at various points, the atonement cover. Why? Because when the priest, after a great deal of ceremonial preparation, the high priest of Israel, one day out of the year, journeys into the Holy of Holies to cast the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So we cover the broken law with the blood. That's the prophetic image that's being set up here. With inside the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, there is a golden jar of manna, one, the budding rod of Aaron, the original tablets of the covenant. And on the screen there are the different references. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 actually gives the most complete account. I wanted to review really quickly also the area of Israel, or excuse me, the area where the people of Israel had their greatest challenge. And it was a challenge that they absolutely did not live up to. When they entered into a place called Kadesh Barnea, 12 Israelite men were chosen to do reconnaissance into Canaan. When they returned, they had a cluster of grapes so great that it had to be carried by staff. Ten of the twelve were fearful and actually spoke against God. Did he lead us out into the wilderness because there were no graves in Egypt? That kind of thing. Only two remained faithful, Caleb and Joshua, son of Nun. God threatens to wipe out Israel in a single stroke in Numbers chapter 14, but Moses himself intercedes on Israel's behalf. Remember your promise to Abraham. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness while that generation passed away. 
So when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the people, with two exceptions, the people that Moses is preaching to are a brand new generation of the people of Israel. And again, Caleb and Yehoshua, Joshua, remained with them to the conquest. So going back to the Ark of the Covenant, remember, this is the tabernacle setup. You have the courtyard, you have the tabernacle proper, the portable sanctuary, where you have one cubic measure room where the Ark of the Covenant sits that represents the throne room of God on earth. The two other thirds of the building, notice that the original sanctuary is cut into three pieces. One third is the Holy of Holies, two thirds as the holy place where the priests have fellowship with God. Both separated by a thick curtain. In, in your copy of God's Word, more often than not, it is called a veil, but this is no piece of cloth. This is a giant, ornate, mega structure, which probably weighed several hundred pounds. It was several feet, in some accounts, thick, and it had very ornate uh, pictures of guardian angels sewn into it. So anyway, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant is the centerpiece of the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat itself sitting in for the throne of God. This is an artist's rendering of, through faith life of the Ark of the Covenant. It is not ever to be touched. That's one of the things that will come back later on as we talk in the book of Joshua and in the books of the Kings and Chronicles. The Ark of the Covenant you could not touch. The only thing that could touch it was the blood of the sacrifice. There were two poles, acacia poles, on either side of it through which the priests would carry it on their shoulders, processing it, but it could not be touched itself. So here we are back in the map of the Exodus event. We have finished the 40 years of getting Egypt out of Israel, heading north to the area of the Dead Sea where Moses will give his final farewell where God will give him the opportunity to see the land of promise. So here we are moving up into the area of Moab, the ancestral enemies of Israel, before the conquest of the land. So again, we have some prophetic foreshadowing leading up to this point. Manna, which talks about the provision of God. The water from the rock, which according to 1 Corinthians is Jesus' sacrifice and the propitiation of sin. The water of life. Jesus is the rock. And, of course, we were called the, the brazen servant, the serpent that Jesus himself talks about in John 3, setting up the most famous verse in all of the Bible. So the waters at Meribah, at Rephaim, water came out of a rock when Moses was commanded to smite it in Exodus 17. But here at Meribah, the people are doing the same thing. They're complaining, were there no graves in Egypt? We are wandering in this desert. We need water. So Moses was commanded to speak to the rock. Why? Because the rock, because our rock, our Christ, gives us life after he was smitten. And now what do we do to receive everlasting life? We go to him and we ask. That's the prophetic image that was being set up here, according to Paul. But instead of speaking to the rock, what did Moses do? He hit it again. He struck the rock, and because he betrayed his prophetic office, he was put in the penalty box. He was for 120 years at this point, 40 years as a prince of Egypt, 
40 years as a wandering uh, outcast in Midian, 40 years taking Israel around the promised land. Now, after 120 years, he would not be able to enter the land himself. So looking at the book of Deuteronomy, we, of course, get that name from the Septuagint translation of the Bible, from Greek, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but the word itself means a second telling, which is effectively what this is. This is a collection of three sermons by Moses and the account of his death and his passing the baton on to Joshua. And at this time, he has an entire generation of Israelites that didn't go through Egypt, that didn't go through the original teaching, that didn't have the golden calf incident. All of them have died in the, in the desert. So now Moses is having to tell the law a second time to this new, hopefully faithful generation. This book also serves as the springboard between the books of the Torah and the, books, or the historical books. In this book, we also hear the Shema, what Jesus himself regards as the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. We also hear the Song of Moses, which is both a warning to the unfaithful and a prophecy to the 12 tribes. Deuteronomy itself is the most quoted Old Testament book by Jesus. It's where Moses is basically telling the children of Israel their own history, the relationship with God, and his expectations as the covenant people. He explains the law, calls the people to live a life of righteousness, and he calls them to be faithful in their covenant with the one living God. So his first sermon, roughly chapters 1 through 11, he calls them to remember and to learn from the unfaithfulness of the preceding generation. Learn from others' mistakes so you don't make your own. This is the story of Egypt. This is the story of Kadesh Barnea where we fell. This is the story of what unfaithfulness causes you. This is the story of the rebellion of Korah and how they were all consumed. Remember God's justice, but also remember God is a God who is faithful. God delights in the making and keeping of promises to his children. Now, this is also the, the section that contains the Shema. The word Shema is translated in most of your books, in most of your copies of the Bible, as hear. But the word, like so many words coming from one language to another, has a much deeper meaning. It doesn't just mean hear. It means hear and respond or hear and obey. The word for love, the Hebrew word for love there, is also present. But it doesn't just mean love in the sense of a raw emotion. It doesn't mean love in just the sense of bare commitment. To the Israeli mind, ahab, means similar to what uh, we think of the self-sacrificial love that we would later get in Greek in the New Testament. To love in such a way that you devote your whole self. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. In other words, love God with everything that you are. That's what it more literally means. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. This is something that is so precious to the Hebrew mind that they not only read it on a daily, and pray it on a daily basis, some of them actually have what Jesus refers to as phylacteries, the things that uh, you write that single commandment in Hebrew on a scroll 
Place it in a little box that you strap to your forehead or on your arm. There are also medusas, which uh, you write that down, you place it in the box, you seal the box, and you, you nail it onto the doorpost of your house. Israel is supposed to be, the, the, the big idea in this passage of Scripture is that Israel is to be an example of God to the nations, a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.6. The Torah, all of the law of Moses and that covenant makes Israel a unique nation upon the earth. For one, they only have one God. For another, they have these uh, customary and dietary restrictions that they hold to. And also they're commanded to serve no other gods. They cannot be synchronistic. They cannot permit the worship of other gods within the bounds of Israel, especially by themselves. That's why the, the, the bringing of Roman figures into the temple was such a big deal. The idea of the kingdom of Israel was to put the justice of God, the mercy of God, the wisdom of God, and the faithfulness of God on display to the rest of the world. To signify that the God over Israel is different, is unique, and not only that, but he is the only God. There's a reason why the rest of your kingdoms are falling apart. There's a reason why this nation takes care of everybody made in God's image while you not only berate them and marginalize them, but sacrifice them. That's because there is a God in Israel and he is the sole God creator of heaven and earth. So through the example of Israel, the rest of the world would understand that there is no God but God. The idea that through Israel, the world would come to know who he is. And here's the warning, that the Canaanites would try to tempt Israel away from God. And we see that, all, we see that even in the books of the Torah, in the, the example of Balak and Balaam, where the king and the prophet, they go on and on about wanting to curse Israel. And the prophet says, I can't do it because God is God and he has chosen this people. But he still, as a hired prophet, gives the king this one piece of advice. If you tempt them into immorality, if you tempt them to worship other gods, this God will turn his back on them. So take your loveliest ladies, parade them in front of the Israel camp to taunt some of the guys away, have them eat at idol sacrifices and watch what happens. And sure enough, part of a generation falls. Moses realized that this was going to happen again. It would be a recurring theme, a repeating pattern. The Canaanites worship aspects of creation. They wanted to entice others to worship with bodily pleasures instead of the relationship with their own creator, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They performed human sacrifices. They valued nothing in human life, just the person's function and the person's wealth. Does that sound familiar? They discredited Israel's example because if you can discredit the follower of a God, then you can do what? You can discredit God. Those that you worship are those you become like. A people becomes like the object of their worship. If you are in Christ and you worship Christ, then you are growing as a Christian, and that word means Christ-like. So if you can discredit someone in what they believe, the theory goes that you can discredit the person that they believe in. Does this list not look familiar in today's time? The enemy uses the same strategy. Again and again, worship aspects of creation instead of the creator. Entice them to do that through bodily pleasures, through the way of the flesh, 
perform degrade human life. Degrade human life and the fact that humans possess a soul. Discredit the example of the believer, thereby discredit God. The second sermon covers from chapters 12 through 26, covering aspects of the worship of God, repeating a lot from Leviticus. There is to be one central place of sacrifice and communion with God. Uh, Worship would also take place through a care for the poor and marginalized. One of the examples of this being that you will not only tithe to the temple as the institution, but you would also tithe to the poor. As Malachi says, bring my tithes into the storehouse. Why is it a storehouse? Because those who cannot care for themselves, the orphan, the widow, the destitute, have a place of refuge, a place dedicated to God. Love God by loving those made in His image. There are also uh, requirements of the leadership of Israel. Character qualifications and statutes governing their elders who sit over the confederation of tribes, the priesthood, and the kings. Effectively, this creates a government system where there's an executive branch and there's a judicial branch. I want you to notice that there is not a legislative branch. Why is that? They already had the law. The law was already written. It only needed to be enacted and interpreted. All of Israel's leaders no matter up until and including the times of the kings, and that's even covered in this, were subordinate to the law. Unlike other nations in the surrounding area, the king was not a law unto himself. The king was bound to the statutes in the Torah. In fact, this is where we also find that when a king comes to Israel, when a king is appointed by God, that king was to transcribe for himself a copy of the Torah. He was to sit down with the temple's copy and with a blank scroll of parchment and hand write Torah so that he could have it to study. The king was not a law unto themselves, unlike Babylon, unlike Assyria, unlike Egypt. The king had to serve God under the law. And he, would, and, he and all of Israel's leaders would be policed in this, held account by the prophets that would rise later on. Continuing on, you had civil laws, which in chapters 19 through 26, this covered personal liability attributes, what we would call the tort laws, marriage and family, business and trade. It would also cover provision and protection for the destitute and the traveler, in some of your translations, the foreigner. Hospitality was instituted in Israel, and also the worship and accountability to God. Now, before we go on, as you're reading through this, there are a few things that you need to understand. When weighing the law of Israel is pronounced in Torah against what we consider the law of today, don't try to judge them in terms of their culture versus our culture. Try to remember that their job, that the, one of the goals of Torah was to create a culture that was related to, it was taken from the Near East, but it was very much also distinct from its neighbors. How many governments do you know up into our own civil war in the late 1860s was slavery instituted not as a loss of personhood and a loss of property, but a means by which one worked through bankruptcy, by a means by which one uh, gained their independence financially from the debtors, and you were automatically given the ability to go free with each passing day of jubilee, with each passing year of jubilee. 
Also note that there is no, there is no law for the retrieval of escaped slaves. You cannot add to Torah. So within the confines of the Word of God, there is no fugitive slave law. If someone mistreats their slave, in fact, they could be drugged before the city gates and stoned to death. How many cultures of the Near East do you know that has that in their law? It's a shame that we didn't learn that lesson ourselves. The Torah was also constructed in such a way to enable the person who was already used to the, the culture of the Near East to understand that this is a covenantal arrangement. It provided for cultural and sacrificial isolation, one which will be fulfilled and would be, excuse me, for our sake, fulfilled in Christ. So we don't have that isolation anymore. We don't have that, uh, that boundary marking us from the rest of the world. There is no Christian nation, so to speak, where all the Christians on earth are only here in this geographic area. No, we are scattered to the four winds, so to speak, and through that way we are responsible for the redemption of all creation. But when you're looking at Israel's law, look for its ethical underpinnings, what it has to do with love, what it has to do with justice, what it has to do with mercy, and what it has to do with one's devotion personally to God. Also, for bonus points, compare that law with the laws of other nations, what you know about Egyptology, Assyria, what we read about Babylon, the Code of Hammurabi, and even what we know about the Institutes of Rome, one of which was the kind of slavery that was practiced actually on these shores. Once you have taken a look at the ethics behind the law of the Old Testament, look for New Testament echoes or restatements of the law. What does Paul say, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, that he identifies with the symptoms of a people that turn their back on God? So when you're looking at the law, remember the law has been fulfilled. What are the ethics under the law? What is the, the theme of devotion in the law that calls someone to be repentant, to call someone to the worship of God? The final sermon of the prophet Moses, chapters 27 through 34. This is a final challenge to obedience to God where he gives promises of blessings for the faithful, promises of the curse of God for unfaithfulness. He actually prophesies that upon his death, you will start abandoning God after I die. Almost from the moment that this generation passes away, after having seen all these things, you're going to betray Torah. You're going to forget about God. You're going to reject everything that I've taught you. And it will get so bad that one day in the future, you will actually be cast out from the land to a land that is foreign, to a land that is full of idol, idol worshipers. Moses actually predicts the Babylonian exile here. So he pleads with them. You have before you this day a choice between cursing and death and blessing and life. Choose life. Couples this with a promise of God's grace to forgive. Something that Solomon will Later here is God says, when my people... Anyway, let's keep going. There's also one more thing that we need to pay attention to, a promise of inner transformation. Moses goes ahead and lays the foundation for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian believer. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. 
verse 16 of chapter 30. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land that he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After this, his last warning is his, well, after this, his last sermon is the Song of Moses, which consists of warnings for the unfaithful, an entire chapter devoted to them, prophecies for the 12 tribes of Israel, and at the end of the chapter, his final sermons, his, excuse me, his final instructions to Joshua, who would take over after him. Finally, in chapter 34, we read his death account. Moses journeys to Mount Pisgah, which is a peak on top of a ridge system known as Mount Nebo. That's why it's mentioned that way in your copy of God's Word. Pisgah is the height of a single peak of Mount Nebo, which is a ridge, not just a single mountain like the way that we stereotypically think of them. He's taken to see the land of Canaan, which will one day become the land of Israel. He dies in peace at the age of 120. His body is actually buried by God himself. And there's, uh, I'm, I'm bringing it to your understanding. We might cover it later on as we draw this study to a conclusion. At, in Jude 1 verse 9, Jude only has one chapter, there is an indication that the body of Moses was actually argued about or fought over between Satan and Michael. I don't know what that's about. It's not really explained, but I put it up there because of its interest. Anyway, Israel mourns for Moses for 30 days. And then Joshua assumes his mantle as the new leader and guide of the nation. The account of his death. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as, as, far as Zoar. The Lord said to them, This is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He, meaning God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab facing Beth Peor. And no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. I want you to note this. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. 
Verse 8, the Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. The days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. One would eventually arise, but that's another sermon. Verse 11, He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and the terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So this is the area very close to Jericho, Bethlehem, and Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, New Salem. It's a giant ridge towards the very height of what Israel has overlooking the Dead Sea area. And you can see where it scans over to Jericho and to all the lands there heading towards the Mediterranean. So right now, Moses is having to stop right at the point where they're getting ready to cross over and Joshua is going to face the fortress of Jericho. Incidentally, unlike what the song says, Joshua didn't win the battle of Jericho. God won the battle of Jericho. The reason that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho was because he was faithful and obedient to God. But we'll get into that later. So for your groups in discussion, Remember, and make sure that you're continuing to meet. Hold each other to account in getting through the Word of God together. Share your reading and journal highlights, but I want you to consider this along with your Bible readings, particularly as we enter into the book of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. What happens when disbelief gets mingled with belief? Or what happens when believers start to mingle around with unbelievers? This becomes particularly important when we get to the book of Joshua. Something else I want you to examine. What is human life worth? Remember, as we start talking about the people who are in the, old, in the Canaanite lands who worship the old Canaanite gods like Dagon, one of the things that they will do is consider human life to be optional to the point that they will sacrifice their own children. One last thing I want you to think about. What is impossible for God? Now, off the cuff, you're going to reflexively say, well, nothing. There is one thing. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't spoil it. I want you to think about it. There is one thing that is impossible for God, and it's impossible because he will not give himself the ability to do it. A limitation he puts on himself. So, what happens when believers and disbelievers are in proximity or in relationship with each other? What is human life worth and what is, by his own will, impossible for God? Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, please bless these efforts as we seek to teach and to proclaim your word before a world that doesn't want to hear it, to end the ignorance and the deafness to you and your will so that your people may better understand their own story, so we may understand how our Savior fulfilled the law so that we might be free of its restrictions and yet live life in its ethics 
reflexively finding our way with a new heart to do that which pleases you. Help us to be conformed into the image of your Son. Help us to be faithful in our dealings, upright in our activities, pure in our hearts. Help us to be a reflection of your Son. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.